Welcome to the Big Kids Book Club. A podcast about all things fictional, from middle grade to young adult. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hey, 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 welcome back to another episode of the Big Kids Book Club. My name is Marcus and joining me this week, we have a special episode because I'm joined by my usual co-host on our monthly talk show. Emma is joining us because our super special guest, Emma, do you want to tell us who we've got on the show today? We are very lucky today to be joined by Orwin Hamilton. Hello, Orwin. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. How are you guys? We are pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good. This is a new format for us. We're going to try this sort of like group interview. Uh, it's kind of special for all those listeners. Orwin's books, The Rebel of the Sand series, really brought me and Emma together as sort of like readers. So this is why it's extra special. And we had to do this, this interview together. So we're both very excited about it. Oh, that's so sweet. I'm very flattered. <laughs> Well, what we'd like to do with all our new authors when we bring them onto the show is we like to get to know them a little bit. So if you want to just tell us a little bit of your writing journey, how you got started and how you've ended up to where you are at the moment. Sure. I mean, I I kind of always wrote, um, even when I was a kid, uh, sort of one of my very distinct memories was, um, so I went to school in, in France. The, the accent is North American, but we moved to France when I was three. And France makes you specialize very early. In, um, in terms of things you have to pick from the time you go to high school, whether you're doing sciences or literature or social economic sciences or what it is. And to that end, when we were about 11 or 12, they made us put together a plan for our future. Um, of, you know, no like, pressure. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, it, this was supposed to be, you know, like, I'm going to be a doctor. And to do that, I need to do this you know, thing in high school in order to get these grades, in order to go to this university, get this degree to get to that final goal. And when you're 11, you're sort of barely past the point of like, I'm going to be a space ballerina. And so we were supposed to like do all this research and pull together like which schools offer the courses that we should do and blah, 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 blah. And it actually wasn't, I was kind of a goody goody in school and I got good grades largely, but this wasn't graded. So I sort of rebelled and turned in a single sheet of paper with just a line on it. Um, that said, I'm going to grow up to be an author and I'm going to do an English degree at an English speaking university. Um, and that's what I turned in. And I put it in a binder and everything, which was so obnoxious because everyone else was supposed to have like printouts from the universities that offered their courses. And that's why it needed to be in a binder. I put my one sheet in a binder in a profoundly passive aggressive way for an 11 year old. And um, so that was sort of always my plan even then. And then obviously things took a little bit of a different turn because there was truly no chance that I was going to get into do English because I just don't have the background like where you guys would do English at a sort of school level. I did French. So half the time, if I go and speak to a school now, something that they're reading at the age of sort of 12, 13, you know, I have still never read all sort of all the classics that you would need to do an English degree. I've, I've still never sat down and read some, any Dickens or anything like that. So I ended up doing art history instead. Um, and I kind of stopped writing during university because it, my time was sapped with writing for my degree largely. And then I had to go move back to France a little bit after university because I was still fighting for my French citizenship because I'd complicatedly turned 18 in the middle of my last application. And so they were like, reapply as an adult. So I had to go back and get a job um, in order to be an EU citizen to then continue living and working in the UK. Um, and I got a job in a bookshop then and re sort of rediscovered 
where YA had come in the time since I was reading as an actual teenager. So I kind of went straight from reading as a teenager to selling books to teenagers and reading to sell books to teenagers. And I started writing again, um, then sort of uh, on weekends and after work and blah, blah, blah. Continued that when I moved back to the UK with my French citizenship in hand. And then I wrote probably at least six full books and many non non uh, full books uh, before I finally wrote something that I thought was good enough to be published. And that was Rebels to Sands. And I sent that out to agents and uh, and I was lucky enough that I was all the practice paid off. <laughs> Amazing. That's that's really interesting, um, especially having that kind of back and forth between living in England and living in France. Do you think that in kind of some ways that whole life experience that you had kind of being displaced between the two places helped to feed into kind of your writing process? Like was the, were the earlier works that you did draw on that life experience that you had? I think the way it probably most affected me was that I love to read, but I didn't really have anyone to talk to about the books that I was reading. I remember I read Harry Potter before anyone, because it wasn't out in France yet. And so there were all these books that, and Harry Potter was the first one when people started to read it. It was the strangest experience to sort of, you know, have be like, what, I'm not the only person who knows about the books that I'm reading. And so writing sort of started, I think, almost as an outlet to, to like not having anyone to talk about books with of like, you know, like I need, you know, taking in all this information from this book I love, I need somewhere to put it. So a lot of my early books were, I mean, plagiarism is a strong word for a 12 year old, but you know, it would be like, I'd read something and be like, well, I'm going to write my own thing where it's a girl who goes to a magical boarding school or that, which is I think how a lot of people learn writing. You know, a lot of people start, we'll talk about starting in fan fiction or what have you. So I think it was almost like me writing back to the books. Cause this was also before you could sort of go online and very easily find people to chat to books about or reviews or things like that. Um, so I think it was sort of, I, I don't want to say it was an isolating experience. I don't want to say, you know, like I was alone in France, a lone English child. But, uh, but I think that that hugely, you know, needing that outlet was a hugely impactful thing for me. You mentioned there as well, the trial and error of sort of six full manuscripts and a couple of sort of half finished ones. <laughs> building up to Rebel the Sands, did you at any point think that some of those six could have been the one, the debut, or was it always going to be Rebels? The one before Rebel, it's I always call the almost book because it was almost right. It was almost there. And I was basically like grinding my gears, trying to fix it and not quite knowing how to fix it. Um, and just like working away at it, driving myself crazy. And something I have always done just naturally is whenever I'm working on an idea sort of on the page practically is I already have always have an idea I'm kind of cheating on the book that I'm writing with so I'm not actually writing it but you know it's there in my head and you know and I'm sort of when you're when I because sometimes you get exhausted thinking constantly about the book that you're writing so I found it helpful um, to have something else to think about so I'd spend the day writing writing the book that I was focusing on and then like if I was commuting or walking somewhere the thing that I'd be sort of fantasizing about or thinking about or problem solving within would be the next idea so Rebel was the next idea while I was fighting while I was writing the almost book and then I I took a break from it it was one day I was just I had sort of lost my mind I was like I can't look at this any longer I'm gonna give myself a break I'm gonna write just one chapter of this other idea that I have and then I'll come back to fixing this thing that I can see could that it could almost be there and that first chapter was the first chapter of Rebel of the Sands, and it clicked into place 
so much more easily and so much more quickly than the almost book had. Um, and I immediately saw what was wrong with the almost book and what was wrong with it was something that was right in Rebel, which was that the character in this book didn't have enough agency. All the plot elements were there, but she was very much being led around by the plot. And Amani in Rebel is a character who is very much a plot driver, not being driven by the plot. And so she, so that I was like, oh, that's what wasn't working. This is a complete overhaul. This isn't a, a, a tweak. And I ended up completely writing Rebel, not looking back at the Almost book. But ironically, I think I couldn't have fixed the almost book then, but I could now with everything that I've learned from Rebel. So that might be a future, a future book. But um, but I needed to learn the lessons I learned in writing the trilogy in order to figure out how to make that book work the way I think it could still. That's really cool. So obviously there you've kind of it almost seems like with that, Amani was almost kind of a progression of the character you'd kind of had in the previous book, and that she was, you know, the heroine that you kind of needed her to be. Were there any other kind of similarities between those first six in Rebel. Obviously Rebel is is set in quite a unique kind of the setting with the comparison of the Wild West that you talk about. Were the previous six very different? Were they more kind of contemporary and, and realistic? I say using quotation marks that nobody can see because it's a podcast. <laughs> um, I think it's a, the, the Almost book was the first fantasy was the first fantasy book of the ones that I wrote before Rebel, which is strange because fantasy has always been what I loved reading. Um, I don't think I could ever write contemporary. I hugely admire people who can because I personally really struggle to move a plot along without something blowing up or someone getting punched <laughs> or like, oh, there's people who can move plots around with just emotional beats. Like that's that's magic to me. Um, so I, that's a completely different skill set to what I do, I think. But I think a little bit coming back to what I was saying about you know, you you write what you read. When I sort of came back to reading YA, I guess, what year did I graduate university? 2009? The YA market was, there wasn't much YA fantasy in it yet. It was sort of very dominated by a lot of paranormal. Twilight had come to an end. The Cassandra Clare books were very good. When I was working in the bookshop, I was once yelled at by a mother who was like, uh, she, I've, I've never felt so bad for a teenager that she marched her daughter in and was like, my daughter has now read Twilight nine times. For the love of God, will you recommend something else to her? <laughs> and I, I literally remember just, and the girl looked like she wanted the floor to open up and swallow her, which I cannot blame her for. But I literally remember being like, yes, of course, let me lead you over to our table of like, literally we had an entire table of paranormal things of like, if you like Twilight, you will like these. And I ended up selling her um, City of Bones, which I, I hope she also read nine times <laughs> if she loved it as much <laughs> as Twilight. But it was sort of, you know, so it was kind of a lot of, I don't think I was necessarily consciously trying to like write to the market. I don't think I was that sort of quote unquote savvy, but I think it was a natural thing of like you read and you see how it's done and then you kind of put your own spin on it. So while I was never writing contemporary, it took me a minute to get back to fantasy because it took a minute for YA fantasy to really emerge in a big way in the market and and read and be like, oh, that's how it's done. And I think the reason I struggled with that a little bit with coming to fantasy as a YA writer was because so much of the fantasy I had read, it's even when I was a YA, was non-YA. Like I loved the, the sort of Game of Thrones series before it was, you know, before it was big, you know, and all these things that are you know, fantasy, but they're very adult and very inappropriate for a teen audience in a lot of cases. And so getting to see someone put a spin on that that wasn't so adult, I was like, oh, okay, so that's how that could work. And this is how fantasy can be contemporized for 
this generation and things like that. Because again, the other, I'd say the last YA fantasy I'd read probably before that was the Alana series, which is one of my favorite series, but it came out probably in the eighties. And so I sort of needed a lesson in, in sort of someone to show me how it's done and then be able to follow that path in a non-plagiarizing way, <laughs> in a more influenced way. And so I finally, I think that's why the almost book was the almost book was because it was the first fantasy book and it felt right. But I also did need that practice. I always say that to, to anyone wanting to, to write, that it's sort of like anything. It's, it's like playing an instrument or playing a sport is you need a certain amount of practice before you get to the point where you're ready to do it in front of people. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, for me, some, you know, some of that was in writing the earlier books, paranormal, some of them just taught me basic writing lessons, like planning your ending, characterization, blah, blah, blah. But the book that I wrote right before Rebel really taught me some things that I needed to learn about writing fantasy specifically that I was able to carry into Rebel. Yeah, you've touched on uh, quite a few points there. I think Emma mentioned it as well. Putting your own spin on it and the uniqueness of the setting. Now, it has to be said that something that really draws Rebel of the Sands sort of away from other sort of fantasies of that sort of genre is you've sort of blended this beautiful sort of weave of Wild West and Arabian Nights. So we have Amani, who is this, this shooting gunslinger, but she's in this beautiful, you know, sort of like uh, Saharan desert type landscape. Like, where was, the, where was the inspiration to go, Wild West, Arabian Nights? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Push them together. The, the, the answer lies in insomnia as a brief <laughs> answer, but the, the long answer is I had, um, I'd seen a very annoying post on the internet about women as the action leads of fantasy and why it didn't make sense because I'm not sexist but always a great start to a sentence but women just aren't physically as strong as men and so they can't lift the big heavy swords you know do you know how much a medieval sword actually weighs blah 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 blah. and I was like that is so dumb and you're literally applying it to one weapon what about a girl with a gun for instance I was like and then I sort of got in my head I was like I'm gonna write a female sharpshooter and because a gun requires no physical strength to to lift, um, you know, it's, it's a completely skill-based thing. And then my next immediate thought was, I don't want to write a Western. <laughs> I don't want to write a, like, I don't want to write a historical Western. And I, I don't think I'll ever want to write something historical necessarily, although, you know, never say never. But in this case, particularly, I think you can't have this, the scope, the sort of same epic scope in history, because if I were to have said it in the American West, everyone knows what happened. Like everyone knows they're not going to overthrow the president or whatever, you know, because that isn't what happened. So the scope has to be a little bit more contained. Um, And so I was kind of lying there thinking like, okay, it could be Wild West plus something. Wild West, and I was sort of lying there trying to fall asleep and it sort of struck me, Wild West meets the Thousand and One Nights, which I don't know why that didn't strike me earlier because I was working in um, Oriental Rugs and Carpets and Islamic Art at that time. <laughs> um, and so it was something that was that was sort of around me in some visual form a lot of my days. But it kind of, I, then I kind of sort of lay there reasoning it out, thinking, well, okay, well, there's so many things it has in common, like uh, a like sort of a desert setting and and also that they they get around on horseback and also that they um, have very strong sort of religious systems um, in both in both cases. And also that they were both very mythologized by Hollywood in the early 20th century, like all these connections. And the two big things that opposed them was the magic versus the technology. And actually those opposing things didn't make it 
a problem to put them together, it was a nice clash um, that not everything overlapped and that those things could actually work in opposition to each other um, rather than undermine the idea. Yeah, definitely. That's a really interesting thing way to look at it. And great that that was the inspiration kind of behind it, behind having Amani as this kind of butt kicking heroine who's just going to change everything. I'm completely on board with you as as a feminist and I love all the female kind of led characters that we have like in The Hunger Games and in Divergent and that kind of thing. And obviously with Rebel, you've got quite a breadth of characters that we meet not only in the first book, but kind of, but throughout the trilogy. And obviously there's quite a few strong females that we meet along the way as well. Was that an important element for you kind of to carry that through to keep having the strong females uh, throughout Amani's journey? I think, yeah, I think it was, it was something that came naturally. And it's a conversation that's often had of that, that the sort of the strong female character has sort of evolved until like, was a great thing for a while and then people think of it as slightly negative because I think some people have misinterpreted it to mean female character with male characteristics, which isn't necessarily true. I like to define a strong female character as a female character with agency. The female characters that I'm not interested in are the ones who are sort of might as well be a first piece of furniture for all the, you know, like be like, okay, we're going over here now or, you know, kind of thing. And so I, I wanted to, especially go with the second book, how, you know, because there's there's two very sort of notable characters in the first book who do have sort of I, what I would call, I guess, traditionally male characteristics and are strong female characters and the fact that they kick ass. Um, but in the second book, I wanted to have some women who equally had a lot of agency, but were more feminine. So that's why I sort of populated the harem with these women who were scheming and using their brains and using their bodies and using their, you know, all these different things. But I wouldn't say that they are any weaker or lesser as female characters than someone who can fight just because they fight with their minds instead of with their fists. So that was something that was crucial to me to show. Well, the pen is mightier than the sword. So you've nailed it there. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. So Emma's actually done a nice point there where she's opened up and expanded into the trilogy. So when you obviously you uh, got your agent and you got to sell Rebel of the Sands, did you always have it in your mind as like a trilogy and you're like, ah, it's going to go here and here or here? Or was it just actually this initial Rebel of the Sands, just a, a single book and it's just spun off in a, in a great direction on its own? When I was writing Rebel, I foolishly thought it would be a standalone book. Um, I I sort of had it all planned out. Um, you know, I was like, they'll go here and they'll go there, and then and this is how it will end. I'm trying not to be spoilery. I realize yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and it'll and it'll stand completely alone. And um, and then I got about sixty thousand words in, and they were cro- and they weren't at the rebel camp yet. They were still crossing the desert, and I was like, this is either going to be a three hundred thousand word book. <laughs> or I need to figure out a way to split this. So I actually sort of stopped at that point and sat down and the sort of arc, the, the overarching plot that is in the first book of the weapon and all that actually came in after I decided it was gonna be a, tr- a trilogy. So I reworked once I sort of knew this was gonna be cut because otherwise it would just be annoyingly episodic. And, but I'm a big believer in the fact that for trilogies, the first book should be able to stand alone and then the second book, you can end on a cliffhanger because once you've committed to the second book, but I don't think you should sort of trick people into committing to a whole trilogy with the first book. I kind of think of it as a bit of the Star Wars 
motif of like, you know, the first one ends, they've blown up the Death Star, they've won, they're getting their medals. Sure, there's this side thing of Darth Vader got away, but if you stopped watching at the end of A New Hope, you'd be perfectly satisfied with, well, that was nice, they won. If you stopped watching at the end of Empire, you would never know whether or not Han Solo got out of carbonite kind of thing. And so I think that's the, the structure that for, for me as a trilogy, but the ending that I had planned when it was just gonna be one book is was always the ending. Like that is that's always what I was working towards. So that is so the ending that I thought it that I had planned when it was going to be one book is the current ending of the of the third book. So that never changed. It just got punted down the path a little bit further. Two, two two books further on. Yeah, exactly. So with that kind of extension that you have there, did you find kind of say between, okay, say for argument's sake, that 60,000 words that you'd written was Rebel of the Sands and then half of Traitor to the Throne. Was there ever any point between kind of having to flesh out the second half of the second book and the third book that you maybe got stuck a little bit? And because like you said, you always had that ending in mind, but was there ever a point where you thought, okay, well then how are they going to get from X to Y? Generally, I, I kind of, what it sometimes works for me to have an ending and not totally know how to get there. I think often I'll have pillars to know that I, that to sort of big, big scene pieces or big plot pieces that I know this is coming up. So at least I know kind of roughly where I'm going. I'm not lost in the wilderness, but how I choose to get there can, can vary. And I think it's sort of important to let that happen because if I get if I decide everything up ahead of time and something doesn't work, it can get quite frustrating because a lot of the times things I'll find, you know, you plan them out in your head and you think it'll work perfectly. And then you go to put it on page and you find a plot flaw or a logic flaw or something, some reason that that actually doesn't work. And so I think for me, I have to be a little bit malleable to what's happening in the story. Um, I'll like, you know, and let things change. Again, I will try to say this without spoilers, but the, final character who dies in here in hero i had never thought that they were going to die i had them planned to live i'd written the epilogue long before anything else and they were in it um and then that character the the way that their journey went in the story it became apparent that they've been saved one time too many for it to be satisfying for them to be saved a third time that they were going to have that it made was much more narratively satisfying for them to use to sort of pay those saves forwards to sacrifice themselves for the greater cause and so that was something a time when i had to be adaptable to the way the story evolved for instance and then that death becomes a sort of major plot point that propels us down the line into things that's probably this is probably really annoying to listen to if you haven't read the read the books people going what is she talking about this is so vague <laughs> um but yeah but a character i'm trying not to say who dies so that you don't go well there's no point in reading about them <laughs> they're just gonna die <laughs> there's no point getting emotionally invested in them all the more reasons to go out and read it <laughs> There you go. Perfect. Yeah, you're right. It's a genius marketing technique from me, not me being weirdly vague. Sneaky. (laughs) But it does actually, it highlights quite a few really nice things there. Because I was going to ask you about, was there anything over the course of writing a trilogy, um, developing? You mentioned how you had your Almost There book and those six books before, how you learned so much. Was there any one or two specific things that you learned from starting Rebel the Sands to when you got to uh, Hero at the end and you're like, you could say the end officially, put the trilogy down. What was like one or two really big takeaways that you've developed as a writer, grown as a writer? 
I think one of them would be that I, as much as, so the, the, the new book that I'm writing is third person, multiple point of view. And part of the reason of that is because Rebel to Sands is first person, single point of view. And in a trilogy, as you get to know these characters and they got more developed for me, I actually found it got quite frustrated not being able to tell the reader more about them without it being told through the point of view of the main character because it's it, you know it's not going to ring true if if you know the only way to tell them something is for the other character to sit you down and be like so here's what's going on with me you know and I was like but I was like I know that over there they have this whole other like weird romance going on that I'd love to tell you about so I think I I sort of learned how things can develop even even though you know, they might be, well, these characters were, I don't want to say one dimension, but they were much simpler later on. But as the story goes on, they get their own stories and they're not completely incidental to the main character. And so that's something I'm excited about taking forward of knowing that I have the ability with different storytelling devices to actually tell those stories of the characters who are revolving around the main characters by, by putting multiple point of views. And the other thing I would say is... Well, this is actually not this is actually not my piece of advice. This is a piece of advice I heard from Ali Carter, who wrote the Gallagher Girls series um, and um, High Society, which is one of my favorites. But she has this thing, and I think it's I think it's from Gattaca, which she says, "Save nothing for the swim back." So don't hold things back because you're like, "Oh, I'm saving that for book two, or I'm saving that for book three. If it's a good idea, or you know, and this is where it belongs, put it up front. Don't hoard ideas. Spend them now, and you'll be forced to come up with the currency of of more ideas later. You know, because you will have to write the other books. So don't worry about spending all your ideas on on book one. If it's a good idea, just put it in. Don't be like I'm hoarding. I'm hoarding this this reveal for book twenty two, or <laughs> this my long epic series, or whatever. You know, spend it now, and and you'll come up with a good idea when you get to book twenty two, if indeed you do. And also because things might change by the time you get to book two or three, you don't want to spend like, oh, I was sitting on this amazing reveal and it doesn't make any sense anymore. No, that's a really cool way to to think about it. And also a great kind of lead into that next thing that you're working on, um, Notorious Virtues. And just with that, with that kind of change of tone that you've had now with the multiple POVs uh, and the third person, have you found it? kind of a an odd adjustment like did you find yourself writing I and then in the present accidentally and then having to go back and adjust or have you more enjoyed being able to like you said get into different characters heads a bit more I did switch to I a few times when I was pitching it like in the middle of a sentence um because I I wrote up the proposal for it when I think I was maybe still working on hero so I was still very much in the I mindset so I'd go from like doing edits on hero to writing up chapters of this new book and I would literally start the sentence with like, she walked down the road. And then I looked to my left. And I was like, no, you just switched that right in the middle of a sentence. I think it's it's been interesting because you sort of, I think you tend to think of, oh, it would be exactly the same. I just have to switch out the pronouns. Um, I for she. But that's actually not right. There is a slightly different rhyme and rhythm and and sort of use of point of view when you're in third person even though you would think it's the same thing close first person and close third person so I think that took a, a bit of a minute to get into that cadence um, to a certain to a certain extent and then swapping between people's heads between chapters always throws you off for a second because you know I'm used but that was also something that I was excited to do because as much as I love Amani and as much as I loved writing 
her, it felt a bit like I'd been having a conversation with the same person for three years. So, you know, at a certain point, I'm like, I love talking to you, but my goodness, I need to, I need to meet other people. Um, so <laughs> I was like, you know, so I, it was nice to sort of have a break from having this, this narrative conversation with just her. And if I'm sort of expended myself on a chapter, I'm like, and now I'm go talk to my other fictional person <laughs> on the next chapter, rather than you who are being really exhausting right now. Yeah, and, and bringing on to that though, meeting new characters, is it Honora? Is that how it- Honora. Honora. You know, where was the development? Because it seems that this is gonna be a lot more, you know, politically charged. There's still the sort of sense of magic behind it, but it's definitely got a different flavor. So it's not gonna be like just a, a, a sort of a rehash of Rebels. You've really gone down a different route here. I wonder where this inspiration came from. I think it probably became, it's funny because when my agent said, when we were sort of wrapping up Hero and she said, what do you want to work on next? I pitched two different things. And one of them was uh, Notorious Virtues. And one of them was a much more action-packed sort of action scene idea. And I had just, I had just come off of writing Hero, which has so many action scenes in it. And I, and I felt myself exhausted, almost even just writing the pitch for being like, and then they'll fight and they'll blow things up. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so tired. <laughs> Can I have writing action scenes of like running around? Can we sit in some like nice ballrooms and wear some dresses for a while? <laughs> um, and so I think that's why, you know, so I pitched my agent both the ideas and I said, I, I said, I, I think I'm leaning towards Notorious Virtues because I think it's a, it's a different vibe and I think I will wear myself out, right? If I'm writing something that's too similar or it might risk sounding too similar. And so and that you can't, so there are, there are actually still action scenes in it because as I said, I don't think I know how to progress plot without at some point someone being chased or exploding something. Um, but I also wanted it to be a mix of sort of intrigue and um, have some sort of quieter moments and some more, um, some more, some, some, I don't want to say slower because that makes it sound boring, but moments that are driven by dialogue and intrigue rather than by, you know, we're, ch- we're running, we're being chased, we're da, 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 and the franticness of it because I was, I was tired, honestly. <laughs> like I was just, I was just exhausted. Of, and, and I just, I honestly said, I don't know if I have another action scene in me right now. I've written a bunch. Um, and so I'm glad I gave myself a, a break from that. So, but I do like writing action scenes. So I'll, I'll come back to it. So just from the sound of that, with Notorious Virtues, it sounds almost a little bit more kind of sophisticated. Do you think your uh, kind of target audience might be maybe a little bit older than um, those who would have read Rebel? Sure. I think it's, that's an interesting question. We were, I was talking about this with someone the other day about the concept of sort of accessible fantasy. And I think I like fantasy that is always a little bit accessible. I think there's something a little bit gatekeepy to like, you have to know every fantasy trope and be used to like what this means and that before you even start this book. And that's not my my favorite thing. So I think it's still accessible. And I don't necessarily think the content is sort of any more mature in terms of sort of like a content warning of, I wouldn't say that this is a, a PG-13 over, you know, Rebel being a PG or anything like that. But I, I do wonder if, because it's less action-y, and this is something that I don't necessarily think is, a, is an ideal thing, but I wonder whether booksellers would, might be more hesitant to give it to boys, um, because I find that sometimes. So that, I feel like that might be the thing that's a different audience, because I know a lot of people have told me for Rebel, you know, often we find, and actually the interesting thing that people say to me is it's not young male readers who are reluctant to buy books that are featured female protagonists, parents and guardians who are reluctant to buy them for them much more than them. 
um, you know, my I have a, a friend who's a bookseller in France, and she said she has no problem selling Divergent to young boys. She has all the problems in the world selling Divergent to boys' parents. <laughs> so that they'll be like, but it's because I think their cover in France has a girl on it, unlike the ones in the in the US. And so they'll be like, but it's a girl. Whereas boys would be like, I've heard it's full of you know action and and fun things and blah blah blah. And so um, I'm thinking of, for instance, have you read, um, Emma, especially, or either of you, but I feel like you're the expert. Have you read the Winner's Curse series by Maria Rutkowski? I haven't, no. Oh my God, it's so good. You must read it. It's fantastic. Um, but it, it features a girl in a big dress on the cover. And actually it's a dual point of view, male and female, but because there's a girl in a big dress on the cover, I've heard that it's had some problems, more problems reaching a male audience and has maybe been picked up by a younger female audience because they think it's going to be like princessy pretty dresses and actually there's quite a lot of intrigue in it and it would be more suited to a slightly older YA audience and a, a mixed gender YA audience but in general I just I think it's a shame that I sort of gone on a sort of massive tangent now but I think I think it's a shame that girls are expected to read books featuring male protagonists and we don't expect boys to read books featuring a female protagonist so I hope that maybe if there were boys who were fans of the rebel series they might be able to to push past that. So I do think it might be long, the first one, the first book might be longer than Rebel was. Rebel is a quite approachable length, even though Hero and um, Traitor are longer. So that also might be a, something that is, as you say, for a more, for an older YA audience, because they'll be less daunted by the length of it. <laughs> you mentioned there, you know, being approachable and getting that stuff. And I do actually think there is definitely maybe something that we could address. But at the same time, I do think that we need people like you to champion them, authors to sit there and shout that this is approach. I mean, we're trying to do it ourselves, us here on the podcast, we champion all sorts of books. Doesn't matter what type of books they are. We just champion good books. So um, hopefully we can do that again. And yeah. uh, hopefully again, stuff like Notorious Virtues doesn't get hindered by any of that, but we know you're working on that. I just want to quickly cover, cause I just see in the time. So we've got time for a couple more questions. I just want to wonder if you're working on anything else at the moment, is there anything else we can expect on the horizon? Ooh, nothing necessarily on the horizon, but as I mentioned earlier, I always have an idea I'm cheating on the current book with. And um, the idea I'm cheating on Notorious with is actually reworking the Almost book from before Rebel, ironically, because I was sort of working through files and it was there. And I was like, this might be something sort of completely different and, and nice to do as an exercise. And what's interesting about that is how completely unusable so much of the work that I've done is but at the same time how much anything I think that I would do going forward is a springboard from it so I think I'd maybe be able to salvage a couple of scenes from it but the what weirdly what the plot will probably roughly be the same um and so it was kind of it's sort of a nice interesting thing to look back on of like I was like well I might as well start a fresh document if I'm gonna work on this so I think I'm far from from actually sort of sitting down and, and going, I'm writing a draft now because I think it's still in the um, in the sort of planning stages and I'd want to sit down with a notebook and be like character one, character two and do all the sort of sorting it out parts. But I think that's one of the easiest ways to find yourself abandoning a book is if you haven't thought it out quite well enough before starting it. I think that's where a lot of people get frustrated sort of 20,000 words into the book is because they don't know where it's going or they're confused of their character's motivations or things. So that's all sort of stuff I find helpful to work out um, in advance, but uh, it's not necessarily on the horizon. It's just on the back burner of my laptop and one of the 80,000 notebooks I own to take notes in. 
Oh. Um, so yeah, so never never count a, a an almost idea out. <laughs> okay, interesting to find that you're a plotter rather than a pantser. I do have respect for people who can just sit down and just write, but I must admit, yeah. prefer plotting myself. Like, what's this character like? Where are they going? So I totally agree with that. It's a different. I think it's. I think I'm somewhere in between because I'll. I don't. I keep a lot of it in my head for one thing. Um, sometimes I need to work out on paper of like this leads to this leads to that, but I'll spend a lot of it, put a lot in my head because I find if I start writing down too much too early, I sort of think, well, what's the point in drafting <laughs> kind of thing? Like I almost want to, you know, I'm like, I've written, I've written, I've written three pages already. Why do I have to write it down properly on the laptop now? So yeah, I find, I find it helpful to, to an extent, but I do keep a lot of it in my head, which is maybe not the smartest thing in the world, but I think it allows it to feel less formal and and more, and again, it's a bit like coming back to the cheating analogy. You know, it's like I'm I'm fantasizing about my about the sexy new book idea. I'm not actually doing anything about it. I would never. I'm in a committed relationship with the notorious virtues. Oh, I gotta say, I'm completely different than you guys. <laughs> I'll just sit down and write, and then eventually, when I do get stuck and I think this isn't this isn't going anywhere, then I think okay, maybe I should sit down and maybe decide what needs to happen by the end of this chapter and what's what's going to happen next. And then I'll go off again, and then I'll have to stop again. Right. Interesting. Do you know what I find that's actually weirdly helpful with that is I sometimes if I think about I have an idea, I'll write the pitch for it first before I write anything else. And that actually forces me to sort of kind of because because actually long before I even had the idea of writing a sharpshooter, I had an idea which turned into chapter three of the of Rebel of the Sands, which is um, which was like there's a guy who runs into a shop and the, from hiding from the police, and the girl hides him under the desk and she lies to the cops for him. And I was like, oh, I like this idea, and I wrote up the, the little scene, and then I tried to write a pitch for it, and then I was like, don't know what he's running from, don't know what he's running to. This is a completely useless idea. I liked, I enjoyed writing the scene, but this isn't going anywhere. And then it turned into reusable in a different way. But sort of sitting down and trying to pitch, trying to pitch that story made me realize that it was it was not full story yet and or but then sometimes if it is a full story it forces me to be like and then they have to figure out whether this or this kind of thing and even if I'm just pulling out a thin air and I'm like all right at least that gives me something to try for the book but yeah it's a it's a it's a mixed bag of what what works for different uh for different books and different ideas I suppose and different people everyone writes in such a different way it's always so interesting to hear what other writers do so yeah, how so? How does panting really stress you out? Because it would really stress me out, or do you find it really liberating? I mean, yes and no. It's one of those things where if, say, I've got this character and I think, okay, well, she's going to do X, Y, Z, and then it just goes and goes and goes, and I do find it comes out quite quickly and kind of fluidly, and then eventually when I do start to kind of force it then it gets a bit jagged and then I do have to kind of contain myself and think okay let's be responsible now this this could be a decent chunk let's not throw it away just by right. you know trying to do it all at once um yes. and it's kind of you know your heart versus your brain kind of thinking your heart being like oh this is a great idea we'll just run with this it'll be brilliant and the brain being like no if you're going to make it decent it needs to be kind of organized in a sense, yeah. but I, I find my writing process to be very much like organized chaos. That's a good way to work. This is why you guys make such a good pair of, uh, you know, organized chaos and, and, and strict organization. Well, I think, <laughs> I think, I think we do all right. I think we do all right. We haven't managed to kill each other. Uh, you know, we are locked down and <laughs> m- many miles apart, but I think we're, 
we're doing pretty good. Speaking of doing pretty good, we've done pretty good for time, but unfortunately we are going to have to curb it there. Oh, what a shame. What a shame. I would just chat to you guys forever. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. <laughs> I mean, we, we probably would as well, but uh, I, I know I've got to edit it, this at some point. And... <laughs> Let's just keep talking and pose ourselves on the editor. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we'll just chat for hours. <laughs> yeah. Plan, plan. <laughs> but we aren't going to get let uh, our lovely listeners go without enticing them with quite a nice little competition we have this week. Oh, yes, indeed. We have the opportunity for one of you lucky listeners to win a copy, a signed copy of Rebel the Sands, that start of that trilogy, signed by Orwin herself. If you won't be in with a chance of winning this, the lovely signed copy by Orwin herself, all you got to do is head over to our Twitter. That's at Big Kids Book Club, all one long, lovely word. And retweet us with the hashtag Rebels Comp, Rebels Comp, all one word. And our sort of question this week is, uh, so the magic system within Rebels of Sand is all very much genies and such. Um, so we're imagining that you are a demgy, you are half genie yourself, you have magic powers. What magic powers would you have and why? Myself, I, I, want, to, I want to fly. I want to fly, please. That's going to be my one. Uh, oh, wait. Everyone picks flying. Yes! Oh, uh... No, but just but my thought is I'd want to teleport. So oh. which is the more efficient version of flying. Because I always think like why would ever why would everyone pick flying? I guess the flying the flying itself would be fun. Yeah. But for me, you know, I would I would cut out those those you know long, long journeys home. I'd I'd you know, you could imagine you could snap your fingers and spend the weekend, you know, in Barbados and then be back in time for work on Monday without the long flight. I would absolutely pick teleportation. I mean, you've nailed it there. That's a great <laughs> choice. I would go along Amani's path as well and I would pick to control water because I actually grew up in Bermuda that's where I'm from originally so I grew up oh, amazing. by the side so spending all my time near the water and just being able to you know dive super deep and just swim for ages that would be me to a T I'm secretly the little mermaid so that's what we would be uh, what would you guys like to do head over to our Twitter answer the question with that hashtag rebels comp and you could be in the chance of winning a signed copy does that sound good Owen? that sounds amazing i'm excited to see what people say uh, if there's more uh, teleportations well <laughs> yes <laughs> blowing my flight right out the water there um but we have had a great time it's been so amazing to have you on the show thank you so much for joining us Thanks so much for having me this was super fun it flew by it did. And Emma, thank you for joining us on this this cool, crazy extra episode. No worries at all. Thanks for adding me to your author's interviews. It's been great. And with that, like our lovely listeners, I'm going to say until next time, take care, stay safe and keep on reading. <laughs>